evening. Uh, my name's Chris Lee, and tonight I'm going to be interviewing Andrew Brown about his podcast series, Taking the Party Out of Politics. Good evening, Andrew. Good evening. Thank you for having me. So let's start very simply. What inspired you to create a podcast about politics and why taking the party out of politics? Okay, well, I think I've always been interested in politics. I think uh, politics politics is, is, is an incredibly important part of the world and part of life. And however, I think that for most of my life, I've just been frustrated because I've made the same mistake as everybody else and thought that what is in the media and what is on TV and what is called politics and the discussion of politics is what is meant by politics. And I think it's only in the last decade or so that I've come to realise that what you see and what you hear and all the noise of political parties shouting about how the opposition have got no good ideas and they're all terrible and how the only good ideas ever come from them and announcing for the 17th time the same amount of funding which wasn't even new the first time, that's actually not politics at all. That's party politics. Politics is described as the art of the possible. And that just means doing as much as you can with what you've got. It doesn't matter the, how rich your country is, everything is, there's a limit to everything. You can't do everything. You have to make choices. And politics is about the choices that you choose to make and why you choose to make them. And I think that's really important for everybody. Um, so that's why I'm interested in politics, because I think what you can do with what you've got, that's really important. And you may have guessed from what I said about the noise of party politics, that I think that political parties get in the way. They, they turn people off. They turn people away from politics. People get sick of the endless shouting about the opposition and all that sort of stuff. And they get sick of the fact that they can't really make head or tail of which statistic is being twisted or spun this way or the other. And I think that's very sad because actually we need people, we need everybody to be engaged with the idea of what can we do with what we've got? So we need to get the party out of the way of politics, the political party out of the way of politics. And yes, OK, it's a title um, and it's trying to be a little bit provocative. And uh, uh, I think the, the introductory noise is a little bit of a, uh, a cocktail party as well. The idea of, uh, of it being party celebration, trying to take a little bit of that out of it as well and to just focus on the stuff that's really important. OK, so tell me a little bit about what you've done and how the podcast is structured. And if you can, uh, tell us a little bit about what people have said to you about your podcast so far. Okay, well, I wanted to start from the very beginning. So look at exactly what is supposed to be happening, and then move on to why that's not happening the way it's supposed to. And from then move on to what we could do about it. So the first series is very much about what should happen with politics, what the point of politics is, from very basic stuff like how democracy works, how we make collective decisions. And then from the point of view of the voter, why some of those things just aren't possible. And if you like, we can talk some more about why some of those things aren't possible for the voter. I then had a second series, which was looking at the same sort of ideas, but from the perspective of how a politician, the things that a politician has to do in order to get elected, and how that makes it very, very difficult for politicians to be representing their constituents to be doing what they think is genuinely part of it because they become wrapped into political parties. They become beholden to the political parties that got them elected. And then the third series was looking then at, okay, here are all of the problems. We've identified all of the problems. What can we actually do about it? And trying to identify a few different things which are 
It's not about throwing the baby out with the bathwater, not about completely reinventing the wheel, but how could you use the systems a little bit differently, a little bit more imaginatively, uh, in order to make those systems work a bit better? And one of the things that is becomes clear is that it's not just about changing the way we use the systems. It is also down to us to make sure that we make the effort to be involved. Now, I know that a lot of us have been turned off, as I said before, by the noise and the, the just the, the, the colour and the... the backbiting of party politics but actually we all do need to pay attention because if we don't pay attention political parties it's not really their fault they're built that way but they'll get away with as much as they can that's kind of their job it's kind of what they're there to do and we have allowed them to develop into these incredibly efficient machines for centralizing power and we need to just pay attention we don't have to do an awful lot maybe a few of us need to volunteer for a few things But all of us need to do more than just turn up randomly once every five years and try and remember who we would like to vote for, but actually to pay attention. Because if you pay attention, people are going to pay attention to you. They're going to respect more of the things that you actually want. So partly it's about changing the systems, the way we use the systems, and partly it's about us all making the effort to be a little bit more involved, a little bit more engaged. Okay, so tell us about the reactions you've had so far. Well, I have to admit that I've not uh, promoted this as perhaps much as I should have done. Um, and I've been very, very gratified by all of the, all of my friends and my initial, my immediate contacts who have uh, made the effort to struggle through all of the things that I've, that I've been trying to say. Some people have said it's too easy. Some people have said it's too hard um, in terms of the sort of the audience that you're aiming at. I think I was had in my mind that it would be aimed at somebody who is interested in things but doesn't necessarily know a lot to start with. So not starting with the presumption of a lot of knowledge. And looking at it from that point of view, looking at it from understanding that that was the, the, the target audience, uh, people have been very positive, very supportive about it, actually, and very interested in the ideas of what it is that you can actually do about it. And that's led through to a few other things coming up. Um, in particular, uh, I have the opportunity to do a TED Talk later on this year, where I've got to try and distill 30-something half-hour episodes into 15 minutes, which is proving to be a bit of a challenge. But, uh, but it's quite an interesting challenge, and it's a very different sort of format. So that's nice. Do you think that you're addressing a specifically British problem? Or is there something more universal about your observations about politics? I think I'm addressing it from the point of view of the UK because I think people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. It would be completely inappropriate of me to start casting aspersions on other people when we clearly have massive systemic problems in this country. That said, many of the same things apply with a little twist here, a little twist there in other countries. So, for example, one of the points I make is about how electoral systems what we call first past the post, both at the constituency level and then at the national level in this country, mean that you can get both local MPs elected with less than 50% of the local vote. And in fact, in the last general election in this country in 2019, a third of the 650 MPs who were elected were elected with less than half of the votes cast in their constituency. And then you can also end up with a national government, which has less than half of all of the votes cast. And in fact, we haven't had a national government in this country with a majority of the popular vote since 1935. That's nearly 100 years ago. There was one government uh, just after the war which came very close. But since 1935, we've had governments that have had less than half of the popular vote. That means more than half the people voted for somebody else. Now, I'm taking examples from this country, but there are equal examples in other countries. 
quite a well-known one, is that um, in 2016, because of the electoral college system in the United States, Donald Trump was actually elected with less of the popular vote. I think he got about 46% of the popular vote, where Hillary Clinton got 48% of the popular vote. So he was actually, because of the electoral college system, he got more electoral college votes, and so was elected president. Weirdly, although that might be one that you've heard before, you might not be aware that in the 2020 election, he actually got more votes. His vote share went up from something like 67 million to 74 million. And he actually got a bigger percentage of the votes than he got in the previous election. The only thing was that Joe Biden got even more. But uh, that, that one seems to have uh, not been noticed by people. But no, there are, there are similar parallels that exist in many, many different countries. Okay. Um, you seem to have, I guess, uh, a sense that the system can be saved, that politics can be redeemed somehow so that it provides a better service, more democratic, more representative than the one that we have at the moment. There's a lot of people out there, I think, who are completely disillusioned and who might feel that tinkering at the margins of our system is not going to address the deep problem of politics, which is that it is on another plane, it's removed from the reality of everyday living. How can a politician ever really understand the difficulties that I'm going through as somebody who's struggling in uh, 2023, trying just to, you know, keep myself and my family fed and clothed and housed. Okay, there's quite a lot of big things there. I think there is truth in the fact that because of the party political system, a politician who has been elected thanks to that party and who is then beholden to that party and who is then, for example, required by that party not to make too much of a fuss at the scrutiny level and to nod things through that his political party or her political party is proposing at the governmental level. It's very difficult for that politician to be truly representing the needs of their local constituency because they're beholden to the national party and the interests of the national party. So there's a lot of truth in that. That's why I think we should take some of the centralised sting out of political parties. And I think that there are probably six or so think big things that need to be looked at in terms of the, the, the ways in which we conduct politics. Some of them I don't think are particularly controversial. I think we should have some facts that we all agree on, have an organisation that says this is what the, the numbers are. Um, and those, those organisations exist, and there are organisations which check how politicians are quoting those facts. We shouldn't be arguing about what the facts are. We can argue about what we do about the facts, but we shouldn't argue what the facts are. I think we should also have some way of collecting lots of good ideas. Many different people have lots of good ideas, and we should try and collect those good ideas. But there are three things that I think that um, are sort of systemic changes in the way we handle politics. The first one is connected to what I was saying about the first-past-the-post system. The first-past-the-post system means that we have politicians who, A, are not representative of the people, of the majority of the people in their constituency, and then a national government that is not representative of the people across the country. I think we need to change that very simply by having a system which is much more like proportional representation, because that represents the proportions of the different views across the country. Proportional representation is used by more than 100 nations worldwide. It's used by most of the countries across Europe, including most of the most stable democracies and successful countries like Finland, Sweden, and so on. So I think we should look at having a system of proportional representation. That would mean that our governments would not have a majority in Parliament without having a majority nationally. And that would mean they'd have to talk to each other. They'd have to compromise. They'd have to come to consensus. They'd have to try and build consensus around particular issues and things like that. 
Now that would make them less centrally strong, but it would also make them less headstrong. It would mean they wouldn't be rushing into things. It means they wouldn't be pushing things through. Because the second big problem of our governments is that they have this ability to push things through. The average tenure of an elected government minister is about 18 months in post. And that means that a minister has this idea that they have about 18 months, maybe less, maybe slightly more, but on average 18 months, to make their impact. And of course, they're going to rush into trying to do something. But that means they're going to rush stuff through that isn't properly considered. It might be something they genuinely believe is the best thing. But if they're not building consensus around things, you get huge what are called blunders. And that, the, those are things like the poll tax, which was a great disaster. It eventually brought down the Thatcher government. You get things like the Child Support Agency. The Child Support Agency was founded on just the wrong idea and a particular version of understanding human relationships, which didn't apply to the vast majority of people. Now, those things and about 18 or so other big blunders have cost, cost the country not just the heartache of individuals, but billions of pounds in lost money, in money spent in the wrong direction. So we get headstrong government that's rushing into things, not very representative. And the third big thing that I think we need to change is we need to change the fact that we're not getting to grips with what are called the wicked issues. Now, the wicked issues, you get them at a personal level, the stuff that you know you should do, but don't really get round to doing. And at a political level, it's should we spend money on education or on health? Should we deal with the economic, uh, with the environmental pr- challenges that are in front of us? Now, we've all faced the idea that we know that things need to change. We know we can't carry on like this. But are we actually going to be the ones to put ourselves through? Are we going to be the ones to forego? There was a case in London recently where it suggested that the the by-election in Uxbridge was won by the Conservatives, even though there was a huge swing against the Conservatives nationally at that point, because people were persuaded that they were not going to be allowed to drive their vehicles through central London vehicles over 15 years old that were polluting. Nobody actually thinks pollution and wants their children to breathe in polluted air. Nobody, nobody wants to do that. But we are, we are slow to get to grips with these wicked issues. And politicians know this. And politicians don't want to be the one who pushes through the, the wicked issue, the difficult decision, and risk not being re-elected. So the wicked issues are not getting dealt with. Now, to deal with the wicked issues, I think we need to have what's called a citizens' assembly. And citizens' assemblies are 50 or 100 people who get together to represent the cross-section of people all across the country. So that's by age, by location, by gender, by ethnicity, by education, by types of jobs, all sorts of different ways. So you've got 50 or 100 people who really represent the country. They are then given all of the information about an issue. They speak to all the experts about an issue. The process is televised so that you or I not only could also watch in and learn for ourselves, But we're reassured because we know that we could do that. So we know that it's all open and above board. And that Citizens' Assembly makes a recommendation. This is what we should do about the environment. This is what we should do about the difference uh, of where we put funding into health or into education. The question needs to be properly um, couched for them and and they need to have terms of reference. But this then gives a steer to government ministers. And the government ministers can then say, OK, yeah, we're going to do it. But it wasn't our decision. We were just following the advice of the uh, Citizens' Assembly. Okay, so two two ideas there, getting rid of first past the post and replacing it with some kind of more proportional system and citizens' assemblies. Okay, so let's deal with these one at a time. The critics of uh, proportional representation would say it leads to weak and unstable government. It leads to messy compromise over everything. 
It removes the possibility of a radical program that's actually going to change the country fundamentally. Leads to unseemly horse trading in the formation of a government which can go on for months. So that's the problem with um, proportional representation. And it seems, despite the fact that lots of people in this country want there to be a constitutional change to, to, to enable this system to come in, into force, neither of the big parties, the Conservatives or Labour, seem to be playing ball with that at all in any way at the moment. I'll ask you about citizens' assemblies once you've answered the question about uh, why proportional representation is still a good idea, despite the criticisms I've, I've tried to outline. Okay, well, starting with the last one first, I'm not at all surprised that the major political parties who benefit from a system which is not proportional representation wouldn't be in support of it. One of the points of bringing my point in bringing it in is it would actually lead to less centralised power. And although, for example, the Labour Party might not be in power at the moment, they're hoping to be at the next election. They're hoping to have that centralised power. So, of course, they're not going to be in support of it. They're not going to want this sort of thing because it would be changing the very nature of what it is that they do. Now, in terms of the criticism of it leads to horse trading, yes, it does. Horse trading is a pejorative way of saying it leads to people talking to each other and it leads to compromise. It leads to actually listening to what everybody wants rather than rushing through with a particular thing. Do I think that proportional representation is perfect? Absolutely not. It's just a lot more perfect than first past the post. I don't think there is a perfect system of government. I don't pretend that proportional representation is it. I just think it avoids many of the pitfalls and many of the problems that we have with first past the post. But in terms of, you know, democracy, it it can lead, can't it, to a situation where a small party, or even as we've seen sometimes in countries like Australia, very, um, I know it doesn't have proportional representation, so maybe that's not a good idea, but where you have a very small number of people who can bring down a government uh, and who hold an enormous amount of power because they're necessary for the formation of this kind of assembly of different different viewpoints. And so they are disproportionate in terms of the amount of power that they wield. And so that in itself is not very democratic. I think the same argument could be applied to a situation where you have any sort of coalition, whether that arrives under first-past-the-post or a proportional representation. So I don't think that's a particular problem of proportional representation. Now, proportional representation is more likely to lead to more coalitions, but it's not so long ago that we had a coalition in this country. And, you know, there are compromises that are made on both sides. It's not just a process of trade-off. I think the trade-off itself is a good thing. I think that having a situation where people have to listen to each other, where people have to build consensus around issues, it may be that if you feel the need, if if political parties have the habit of wanting to form a strong central government again, and they need to do deals trade-offs in order to achieve that, that they are going to be ceding an awful lot to minor groups. But actually, it could also be the case that consensus is arrived around individual issues, and individual issues are managed through a parliament on consensus built across political parties between different groups that come together to achieve particular political ends, to achieve particular changes that we need to see in our world. So I don't think the, the argument that small parties can, can wield power is particularly one to do with proportional representation at all. I think it's, it's just as dangerous. You can have um, Northern Irish parties managing to winkle huge figures out of the Conservative Party just to keep them in power. You can have all sorts of, uh, of strange things happen within First Past the Post. So these things can happen. It's down to the politicians to actually make a system work rather than accuse a particular system of being liable to that.
What's to stop citizens' assemblies being hijacked somehow by the governing party to create a completely kind of false membership so that they simply push through government party policies? Well, that would not make it a citizens' assembly. Um, the process of setting up a citizens' assembly is normally done by an independent body. So deciding on the membership. For example, one of the pressure groups in this country, which is very much in favour of citizens' assemblies, is a group called Extinction Rebellion. They have this demand that something should be done about the environment and something should be done immediately. But they don't actually have a particular demand to say what should be done. What they think should happen is that a citizens' assembly should be set up. And they recognise that they would not be on the citizens' assembly. It is very unlikely that a member of Extinction Rebellion would be part of the citizens' assembly. It is very likely that Extinction Rebellion would be entitled to make their case to the Citizens' Assembly, but they would not be allowed to stuff the Citizens' Assembly with environmentalists or anything like that. It is entirely possible that a government would create a fictitious Citizens' Assembly and claim that it was doing this, just as it is entirely possible that governments stuff ballot boxes in certain elections and claim that they have 102% of the popular vote being cast. But that's not what a Citizens' Assembly actually is. So to say that a government could create something which was not this and use that banner, that's not really, not really a challenge to it. Okay, we've heard you talk about proportional representation, and we've heard you talk about citizens' assemblies. Is there anything else that you see as an essential part of the reform of the political constitution of this country? Okay, well, the other big thing of the, the three first things that I think should be changed in terms of the way we use the system is looking at our scrutiny system. Parliament is set up so that subgroups of Parliament, what are called scrutiny committees, are given the power, given the responsibility of checking up on what ministers do, checking up on what laws are being proposed, looking into the detail of things. The reason for this is that the whole of Parliament can't look into absolutely everything. There's just so much going on. So you have a scrutiny committee. But that scrutiny committee is composed of the same balance of members as is the balance of power in Parliament. So if there is a majority of a party A, then there would be a majority of party A in the scrutiny committee. Party A would be the party that forms all of the government and would be leading on almost all of the legislation. Now, if you're a junior MP, if you're a backbench MP, and you have ambitions that one day you would like to be a minister, and you're put on, you have the, the opportunity to be on a scrutiny committee to show your party a little bit of what you can do, how far do you think you're going to get in terms of ingratiating yourself with your party if you turn round and poke holes in what your own party's minister is proposing in terms of legislation, what you get is the opposition parties simply shouted down within scrutiny committees because the, the governing party says, well, you're only shouting because it's not your government, and you get things just being nodded through, rubber stamped through by members of their own party. And that's not good enough. The whole system is premised on the idea that there is an independent scrutiny of what's going on. It is not working that the, the party which is in government is also checking up on itself. That's a bit, well, the, the expression is perhaps poacher turned gamekeeper, but perhaps a better illustration is the idea of if the referee and linesman were formed from the substitute bench of the home team, how fair, how impartial do you think the refereeing decisions would be in a, in a key match, in a key decision? What we should have is we should have a system which takes scrutiny away from political parties. Now, I suggest a system where we have what we would call citizen scrutiny. So, for example, you, I, anybody could volunteer to be part of a group that could be selected. We couldn't just volunteer directly, but we'd volunteer to have our names put forward. And for perhaps a period, let's say five years, the same as a government, we would be chosen to serve on a particular scrutiny committee. It would be our job to look at all the legislation being produced by 
the Ministry of Defence or the Ministry of Education and look at all of the details of that. We would have nothing to gain by nodding stuff through. It's not part of our career pattern. Perhaps even better that we're slightly older, but no reason it couldn't be a younger person because we wouldn't be lining our nest for the future. We should be paid a reasonable salary to make sure that it is something that we are happy to do, that, we are, that, that we're prepared to give up our other jobs to do. But for five years, we would then be the people who would be scrutinising the government. We would have the same powers to call government ministers to account, as backbench MPs do at the moment. We'd have the same support from civil servants who would give us the information and make sure that we were properly given or given everything and they would manage the process. So a citizen scrutiny function would allow the government to be properly called to account to make sure that they're not rushing through on these blunders, not making things that are not going to achieve what they actually are supposed to achieve. There are actually places where MPs on standing down from scrutiny committees have looked back on what they've not managed to do. And even though they might not have agreed with what a government minister was trying to do, they, they can see that the legislation was so badly formulated that it wasn't even going to achieve something that they didn't agree with. At very least, the legislation ought to achieve its own objectives, even if you don't agree with those objectives. So scrutiny is not being done properly, and that could be done by people on a sort of a paid VSO. Okay, so I admire your, your passion and your, your commitment, and you clearly genuinely want to change the political scene in this country. But just one last broadside from a cynic. Politics is not the main mechanism that power uses to operate on the world. It's a bit of a sideshow. The media, whether it's uh, newspapers, but mostly the, the same forces that own those newspapers operating through social media, through advertising, through Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and what have you, grabbing holds of the minds of, of all different types of uh, sections of society and making them believe things, steering them towards a belief that the interests of the wealthy and the powerful are also their interests. That's what we need to change far more urgently than we need to change the political system because we could have a beautifully proportional political system in this country that was still owned by those dark forces of wealthy, powerful manipulation. Well, two points there. I think, first of all, I can't change everything. That doesn't mean I shouldn't try and change something. This is something that I can see the ways in which it's possible to make relatively minor changes and make a big difference in the way that politics performs. Not just for us, the voters, but also for the elected politicians. So I think the argument that there might be bigger fish to fry doesn't mean you shouldn't fry the fish that you're able to get hold of. So I, I, I take issue that we should only deal with the very biggest issue. We should deal with all the issues we can. But in terms of, there is absolutely a point, a very valid point you make about how there is work to be done in the media and how it influences for the worse, some of our worst prejudices and those sorts of things. But the idea that the media, I accept entirely, it can influence everybody who is on TikTok or everybody who's reading Facebook and leads to flash riots on Oxford Street or, or whatever. But the idea that it owns the political levers of power will only apply if it is able to wield that power over political parties. If there are individual people who are volunteering just for five years, it's not their career, it's not their whole lives, there's no particular reason that they should be any more influenced by that than anybody else. 
Actually, what we could create is a parliament that is relatively independent because it doesn't exist only because of the mechanisms of large political parties, which only exist because of the grace and favour or the support within the media, support from particular newspapers. So I think actually trying to disentangle some of the large political parties from being at the very centre of everything would reduce that media power. There is still another job of work to do in terms of Uh, the ways in which we should control what's happening on on social media and uh, the way we should moderate the effect it has on political opinion, on child suicide, on any number of terrible issues that are happening. But I think we should do what's in front of us. We should do what we can. Yeah, it may not be the most important thing, but I still think this is an important thing. Thank you very much, Andrew Brown. Taking the Party Out of Politics is available on all reputable podcast platforms. Good luck, Andrew, with changing the world. (laughs) 